You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. And similarly, the call to affirm or to embrace and to include LGBTQ Christians in the church, it's not a call to affirm things that are intrinsically harmful, but a call to help us recognize that the LGBTQ community should not be on the the quote-unquote harmful list in the first place. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 375. And our title this week is Misclassifying as Weeds. Our reading this week is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark 4, 26 through 34. He also said, The reign of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how the earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because his harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the reign of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, and as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. So, the society for which the Gospel of Mark was written, it considered mustard seeds as an invasive and noxious weed. If a gardener didn't uproot it from their garden, they'd soon not have a garden left to tend. And then, just as now, weeds should be rooted out to stop them from taking over or crowding out intentionally planted crops. Other gospels describe mustard seed growing into large bushes with branches or even trees, but mustard seed, it doesn't actually grow like that. We've negatively labeled as a weed in this story something that ends up growing into a large bush with branches that that positively benefits those around it. We've classified as a weed something that is actually a fruit-bearing tree. So let me say that again for clarity. Actual mustard plants, they don't grow into trees. And what we have in this story is something that, that does grow into a tree. It's not mustard weed. It's something entirely different from mustard, and it calls to our consideration that maybe we've made a mistake in our, our labeling. Maybe, maybe we've mislabeled something. And I think that was Jesus's point. This week's reading compares Jesus's new community of nonviolence and mutual aid and 
resource and and wealth redistribution to a, a beneficial tree that's initially seen as a weed-like threat by the privileged, the powerful, and the property. The way first century farmers viewed the mustard plant was the way the privileged and elite viewed Jesus' teachings and the community of Jesus' followers that, that were centered on those teachings. So, so they were to be rooted out, just like weeds. They were to be, they were as welcome in society as, as weeds are in the garden. But then Jesus' parable, it takes a hard right turn. What people think is a noxious mustard weed, it doesn't produce the same results as they all expect mustard to. It doesn't take over the garden like a weed and leave nothing for anyone. Instead, it becomes a tree. It becomes a source of shelter and food for all in its vicinity. And it's, it's again, it's originally viewed as a weed, but it doesn't bear the same fruit as a weed. The image Jesus uses to represent his community is the tree mistaken for a weed it's 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 from the story in the hebrew apocalyptic book of daniel and daniel nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was likened to a fruit tree that provided food it provided a resting place it provided shelter to all and jesus adapts this imperial image to describe his non-imperial community that provides for those the present system exploits it, it its imagery also communicates to those opposing Jesus's work, you're working so hard to keep me out of your garden as if I'm a mustard weed and are trying to uproot me completely, but you've misjudged me. My fruit is not harmful. It's life and peace and good for all. So this week's reading... It isn't saying that all weeds should be welcomed in the garden or that, that we shouldn't weed when gardening. It's asking us to check our assumption about what we have classified as weeds. What, what if we've made a mistake? What, what if, if we've judged something to be a harmful weed, but that judgment is quite incorrect? The elite in Jesus' society were beginning to view his teachings on nonviolent resistance and wealth redistribution as a weed that must be removed. And so he calls them to see their judgment as a mistake. What Jesus was teaching, it could lead to justice, to liberation, and ultimately societal peace rooted in an expression of, of distributive justice for all. What they viewed as a weed to be rooted out was actually a tree of life. Let's talk about misclassification today. As I consider this week the misclassification of the mustard seed and in this week's reading, there's another misclassification that comes to mind. And when I think about the misclassification of Jesus' reign of God in the Gospels, I can't help but also think of the misclassification of my LGBTQ friends today. This week's reading, it calls us to question our classification of trees as weeds. And similarly, the call to affirm or to embrace and to include LGBTQ Christians in the church, it's not a call to affirm things that are intrinsically harmful, but a call to help us recognize that the LGBTQ community should not be on the, the quote-unquote harmful list in the first place. This month is Pride Month, and Renewed Heart Ministries' recommended reading for June is Sex and the Single Savior, Gender and Sexuality in Biblical Interpretations by Dale B. Martin. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Uh, uh, if you've not read it, 
Get a copy and do so. I promise you, you'll thank me. From time to time, I get letters from other Christians asking me to explain uh, how I can claim to follow Jesus while affirming the LGBTQ community. And these writers typically use misinformed language, such as lifestyle, and, and when they're actually referring to same-sex intimacy. They're also uh, they're often profoundly certain about how clear the Bible teachings are, and they compare my LGBTQ friends with those who in in New Testament lists are are labeled as sexually immoral and even child molesters. And they, they want me to explain how I could affirm LGBTQ people's allegedly sinful behaviors, quote unquote. A sexual ethic that's rooted in the golden rule is a different conversation. I do, though, I want to say this loud and clear this week. Many of my LGBTQ friends are more devoted Christians than I am. I think specifically of a lesbian friend of mine in Ohio. She has been with her wife for over 20 years, and I admire their commitment to each other. It's absurd to even compare her to those who are sexually immoral or child molesters. And as a side note, I want to also add that that many straight people practice things uh, that Christian, the, the Christian aesthetic, uh, purity culture standards they don't approve of. And yet, no one's going around saying that heterosexuals shouldn't get married or become pastors. It's not even it's not even enough to keep a system in place of of making some group an outsider or less than while saying LGBTQ people shouldn't be hurt by that. If this kind of system is still in place at all, then we're all at risk. Do we really have to measure up to Christian purity culture, which many Christians even also reject? Do we have to measure up to those standards just to be treated with mere respect and kindness? There are two lists in the New Testament that writers of the letters that I receive, they often mention. The first one's in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. The second one is in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11. We'll read both. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the arsenikoitai or malakoi, nor idolaters, nor uh, uh, idolaters, adulterers, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 9-11, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the arsenikoitai, uh, the enslavers, the liars, the perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I've been entrusted. So the term homosexuality, it was invented, remember, in the late 1800s. It didn't appear in any uh, English language Bible before 1946. And for most of history, Christians have read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10 very differently than their recent translations suggest they might. The two Greek keywords in these passages are malakoi and arsenikoitai. And these words are extremely difficult to translate into English. Arsenikoitai 
is is found in both 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10. Malakoi is found only in 1 Corinthians 6.9. In Dale Martin's book, again, Sex and the Single Savior, it's extremely helpful here. Martin makes a compelling case that no one living today definitely knows, uh, definitively knows, what arsenikoitai meant. And at best, we're all guessing at those definitions. Surprisingly, Martin shows that whatever our Senekoitai was, most of our extra-biblical vice lists that include our Senekoitai, they characterize it with acts of economic exploitation and oppression, not with sexual violations where we we would expect to find it if it referred primarily to sexual acts. Malakoi is much easier to define. And and yet, I want to be very careful. The definition of Malakoi, it reveals rank misogyny. And again, Martin makes a compelling case in quoting several extra-biblical sources where Malakoi is used. And each time Malakoi appears, uh, there's no question that the term refers to men directly or indirectly acting in any way that society would define as feminine. And some ancient authors go so far as to indicate that it would be better to be dead than to be a woman as defined by their society. They list the the litany of, of qualities that the ancient culture considered womanlike such as uh, drinking too much wine, having too much sex, loving gourmet food, hiring a professional cook, being weak in battle, enjoying luxury. All of those fall into the classification of being unmanly. Malakoi, it, it often refers to heterosexual men too, who, who wore things like nice clothing or jewelry or wore cologne or shaved or did their hair, uh, cared for their skin to aid them in appearing attractive in their their heterosexual pursuits, it meant being soft or effeminate. In that patriarchal society, women were degraded as being inferior to men, and therefore it was considered to be a vice, a malakoi, for a man to act in any way like them. Martin's conclusion is that willful ignorance or dishonesty, those are his words, could allow us to define Malachi, Malakoi uh, uh, so narrowly as to refer to passive homosexuals now today. And Martin's textual scholarship, it resoundingly agrees with Brownson's conclusion in the book, The Bible, Gender, and Sexuality. Uh, this is on page 275. <clears throat> Brownson writes, when we take the original social context of these vice lists seriously, we again recognize a gap between what these vice lists are rejecting and what is happening in committed same-sex relationships today. After 1946, however, there's an obvious homophobic bias that enters into New Testament English translations, and it's not warranted by the original languages. The original languages address men being like women, which again is deeply misogynistic and produces a whole set of interpretive problems. I realize that. But translators after 1946 
They introduced generic homophobia instead. And I have a hunch that some translators may be trying to avoid the misogyny in the original text. Yet these translations, they produce demonstrable bodily harm to a group of human beings that that fruit alone should warn us about their roots. Jesus, like the Hebrew prophets before him, he valued people and interpretations of the Torah that were life-giving rather than destructive. Jesus practiced a kind of, of Torah obedience that expressed itself in a preferential option for the vulnerable. And as a community, LGBTQ people are vulnerable in our time. Through generations of prejudice and mistranslation, we Christians have misclassified as a weed something that isn't a weed at all. In fact, our misclassifying the LGBT community is what's producing noxious weed-like results, including uh, the disproportionate homelessness and the suicide rates among Christian LGBTQ youth who are rejected by their religious families and their churches. The fruit of our recent translations and misclassification of LGBTQ people it's not life, but death. And we have to remember, number one, saying I'm sorry, it's not enough. Number two, an apology that calls straight Christians only to be more loving and to practice more respectful forms of heterosexism or homophobia or biphobia or transphobia, that's not an apology. The language of reconciliation, number three, if that language is devoid of liberation, it's just empty rhetoric. Number four, kindness and respect, they're not synonyms for reparation for harm done in the past. And number five, allowing even respectful disagreement over whether another person should exist is not creating safe space. And that's, that last one is vital. The debate over LGBTQ people is not merely about theology. It's really a disagreement over whether LGBTQ people should exist, should they, they should live openly, and whether they should form families in our communities. And the list in Paul's writings our list of behaviors that can be changed. Sexual orientation is much more like a person's skin color than their actions. It's not something to be changed. It's who people are. Reparative therapy, think about this for a moment, is, is just one example of Christians' attempt to weed out a certain type of person, an LGBTQ person, from existence. And ultimately, that defines it as a form of genocide. Learning to listen to those who are not like us uh, as they share the harm that they've experienced through misclassification, it offers us the opportunity to choose between compassion or fear. Our differences, yeah, they can be scary, but they don't have to be. And although we do have differences, there's much that we also have in common too. Someone who is different from you is also someone's child, just like you are. They're someone's sibling. They're someone's best friend. So remember to breathe and choose compassion. And to all my LGBTQ friends who, who may be reading this week's article or listening to this week's podcast, I want to offer as encouragement the words of uh, Dr. Katie Cannon of, of Union Presbyterian Seminary. This is from the documentary Journey to Liberation, The Legacy of Womanist Theology. She states, when people, even when people call your truth a lie, tell it anyway. 
tell it anyway. Heart Group application this week. Share something that spoke to you from this week's eSight or podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, share an experience of how you came to realize that you had also misjudged something or, or someone and discuss that with your group. And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone? Thanks for checking in with us today, right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.